This is what this whole thing is about. We want to be a people who are about Jesus Christ. And, and it starts out kind of very practically, okay? If you were with us, and I recognize that some of you weren't, but if you were with us last fall, we, um, we talked about the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis starts with creation. So we kind of see, and if you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, it talks about nothing was created without Jesus. All things were made through him, and all things were made for him. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we see God as creator. God made the rules. God made the stuff. God made the animals. God made the people, the image bearers of God. But people, even in a perfect scenario, who regularly walked with God, they're not God. And so God is away. A serpent creeps in, says to Eve, like, you know, I think God's withholding from you. Not his exact words, but this attitude of like, you know, if you eat of this tree, like... You know, you're going to be like God. And they, and they take the bait. God was withholding something from them. So they stepped forward and they took it. Eve did. And then Adam, who was near her, says, yeah, I'm going to take of this fruit. They sin, okay? And right away, like right in the beginning of the scriptures, you see God having a plan. God immediately addresses the situation. So in Genesis chapter 3, God says, hey guys, what, what did you do? You know, you picture these people, they've seen the awesomeness of God, they're living in his garden, they're like, hey, let's hide from God, okay? We'll hide, let's just go over here, like, we'll make some clothes, it'll be awesome, we'll lay in this ditch, he'll never find us, ever. And he found them. And they had, they had doubted him, they had doubted who he was, and God says, I'll make a plan. So in Genesis 3.15, it says, he's talking to the serpent, he's judging the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then there's this interesting part in Genesis 3.15, it's called the Galion. it's the first gospel. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you guys, and then he says, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. And it doesn't fit. It doesn't like flow in that. Like, first off, Eve isn't going to have a seed. Okay? That's not going to happen. That comes from the man. But God says, I'm going to work something out to address this issue of your doubt. Of of you living in sin now. And he makes that promise. But actually, it doesn't even start there. It starts before the foundations of the earth. If you go to Revelations chapter 13, verse 8, he's ta- referring to the beast, and it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the earth, of the world, in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So before the foundations of the earth, before creation is created in those six days, God has made a plan that sin is going to enter the world and there's going to be a savior. There's going to be a savior. This savior, it says here, in the book of life of the lamb who was slain, the savior is going to do some dying. So I don't want to break all that apart now. We're going to have all summer to kind of walk through some of that, but God has a plan. And so as you turn to the book of Matthew and you go to chapter 1, We're not going to start at the very beginning. You can see some of you are like, oh, there's a list of names. I hate when the Bible lists names. Anyone doing the Bible reading plan? In Chronicles, and you're like, ah, 
where's a bus? Run me over. You know, it's just like, good gracious. Do we have to do all these names? But God knew all those people. All those people. And here I am in 2023 reading about Habubazuk and Jobab. You know, I don't know. I'm messing up names here, right? But I'm reading about them now because God worked in and through them or in and through their family. He, he had a purpose and he had a plan. So you see in Matthew chapter 1 verse 2, it talks about Abraham, the father of Isaac. And and God had made a promise to Abraham, much like his promise to, to Eve and Adam. He's like, I'm, I'm going to make a way. And to Abraham, he says, I'm, I'm going to make a way through you and through your family. I'm going to take care of this sin issue. And so as we get into this very practical narrative of who Jesus is, the question that I want to ask you guys today is like, what are you doing with Jesus? And I know that's, you're in church, you're like, hey, I expected that. That was coming. I knew it was coming down the pipe. Yes, that's okay. But today, like, not so much in the saving way. I certainly want you to reflect on Jesus. Is he your savior? But for you as Christians, like, what, what impact does Jesus have on your everyday life? Is there an impact? Is he at work? Like, what, what is Jesus doing in your life? Or how do you reflect on him? Or do you reflect on him? What are you doing with Jesus? So let's go in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, and let's start in verse 19 and get going here. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. In case you're wondering, this is the way that Jesus was born. Okay, there's the man, his name was Jesus Christ. He came to earth, and th- this, is, this is the story, okay? When, when his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be, don't fear to take Mary as your wife for that, which is conceived in her is from the Holy spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he has saved his people from their sins. Okay. You get this picture and it's, it's already dicey. Okay, you've got some awkward conversations in chapters one and two. And this is number one. Hey, I'm pregnant. What? These aren't, these aren't fairy tale people here. You can, you can about imagine that this hits him like a ton of bricks. What? What? Why? Like, we are following the law. Like, we are following the betrothal process. We are following the tradition. Like, I haven't known you. Do we get, do we get what that means, right? I'm trying to figure out which level. Like, how do you want to talk to your kids at lunch today, okay? He, there's been no, none, you know? You know, all right? So that must have hit Joseph like a ton of bricks. And like this, this is a situation that Mary could have been stoned for culturally. Adultery, not an option. This is a significant issue here. But you see a little bit of the character of Joseph in this. Joseph's hope wasn't in this relationship. 
And how do you know that? It's because, it's because of how he responded to Mary in this, okay? He seems totally calm, right? And so we're going to get into this a little bit, but sometimes it's difficult, right? We're doing the Christmas story in June, June 4th. I thought it was supposed to be Christmas in July if we had a second option. But here we are, and we come to this Christmas story, and we've heard it a whole bunch of times. It's easy just to, to breeze over. But there's a real story in here that we can reflect on time and time again about how faithful God is. And it's off to a really rough start. And that's this narr- This whole narrative is kind of crazy. It's pretty low key. Okay, you have an angel in Luke. It talks about appearing to Mary. And then you have this angel here appearing to Joseph to tell this bad news and ultimately good news. But but we're off to a rough start. It's not the kind of stuff that you see on TikTok, okay? It's not the kind of stuff that you push on social media where it's just going to be awesome and, yay, this is about Jesus, so it's just going to be good. It's complicated. And it's a really low-key thing that happens here. They're following the cultural guidelines of betrothal. They're not to, they're to remain pure, all of us to remain pure before marriage. And, and this hurdle or what would you call it a stone is like thrown in their path like this is supposed to be a time of testing like are we gonna be married forever like how is this going to work out between us and it doesn't seem to work very well if someone gets pregnant but god gives this miracle birth right and you'll see in the storyline of jesus christ that god is giving miracle births to many people. In fact, in Matthew 1 verse 2, it talks about Abraham was the father of Isaac. They were like 90 when they had that baby. It was a, it was a miracle. God working through the brokenness of age and giving a child to Abraham and Isaac, but God made a promise and God fulfilled the promise. And here you have a virgin and God can give pregnancy to a virgin. Okay. This is a miracle, and it's a key miracle here. You need to realize that if Joseph was involved in this, the sin of Adam would have impacted who Jesus Christ was. And Jesus needed to be God, and Jesus needed to be man. And through a miracle, not through act, the Spirit creates life. And this is not uncharacteristic of the Holy Spirit. He gives life. In fact, later on in Jesus' ministry, we see him say, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man receives life and comes out of the tomb. We see it in the Older Testament. God's ability, his supremacy over death. Death is nothing to him. We see a declaration from God in the prophets. Like, I can make these rocks rise up and praise me. I can make a virgin conceive through a miracle, through an act of God. I mean, I can breathe stars and boom, they're there. I can make mountains jump up and run to the sea. I'm the Lord. When we see him do that here, he acts in this way and puts Jesus within Mary. It's what he does. Spiritually, he awakens people. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Like this is fitting of the character of the spirit. He can physically give life, but spiritually he can give life. Ephesians 2 and John chapter 3, it says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. 
Don't marvel that I say these things to you. The wind blows. We don't know where it's coming. We don't know where it's going. So it is with the Spirit. The Spirit gives spiritual life to people. So both physically and practically, he gives life miraculously. And spiritually, the Spirit is the one at work giving life to those who follow him. But you see again, like I referenced, Joseph's heart is anchored on the word. He's not ruined by this. It seems like there's a little bit of a gap. It might be a bit speculative on my part between the angels, the vision that he has. But he doesn't seem to lose his mind. He knows what's at stake here for Mary. And he doesn't have a desire to destroy her reputation, nor does he have a desire to destroy her. This, this news is tough and new, but God is still seated on his throne. And it seems like Joseph is anchored in who God is. Another thing about this too, when you talk about this Jesus coming to earth and him being like the king of the Jews and all that he's going to take, like Mary and Joseph aren't a big deal. There's nobody who's a big deal. When you read through some of this stuff on the other column there in Matthew chapter 1, like sure, there's a few kings in there, but a bunch of other people are, they're no big deal. Mary and Joseph are not princes. This is not a prince and a princess story. This is a humble Mary story and a fearful Joseph story. They're not in line for the palace. There's no way that they're ever going to get in, but that seems to be the nature of how God works. He works through the humble. You know, at this point, Mary and Joseph are the only people that know that Emmanuel, God with us, is coming through you. There's no, why aren't the angels here now? Like, hey, this is a big deal. We should show, bring some angels, make it a big deal. Like, let's go to Jerusalem. This is huge, but we're off in Bethlehem of Judea? Like, that place? Are you kidding me? Through a humble carpenter and a humble Mary, God moves and works. And God with us is going to come through those two. It's not the way I would do it. It's not the way I would do it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 through 31 says this, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This wasn't a plot of Mary and Joseph. They couldn't have pulled this off. Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't have made Isaac happen. Miracle, 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 miracle. God orchestrating, God fulfilling, God sustaining. All right, let's jump back to the book of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. It says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until they had given birth to a son. And they called his name Jesus. This bombshell's dropped in Joseph's life, and he's like, you know, God's up to something, and I trust him. 
I'm going to do what the angel says. I'm going to take, we're going to continue with this betrothal. I'm going to marry this woman. And I'm not going to know her because I know that God is working out something here. Something big and something important. I'm going to obey. And it's interesting too here, like Isaiah has written about this, this prophet that is alluded to here, approximately 400 years earlier. I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send someone. He's coming. He's coming, he tells these Israelites over and over and over again. And here, and here it's happening. This prophet Isaiah back so many years ago, he said this, a virgin's going to conceive. God's going to do a work. God gave him the words, he wrote the words, and God caused the pregnancy, right? God orchestrates and God fulfills his promises. Jesus Christ has come into the world. No sin thwarted his plan. No person, good or evil, thwarted his plan. No ruler of their own nation, and they had some doozies. Thwarted the plan of God. No one thwarted the plan of God. There's a story of that King David. David, Jesus is of the line of David. He's running around hiding in caves because his son Absalom was like, I'm going to kill him. God works through that. God works through these, these leaders, good leaders through bad leaders. No big deal. He's on his throne. And now you see it, God has fulfilled his promise. God has come to live among men. This Emmanuel, this God with us. He comes and he presents himself in such a crazy way. And so we have to talk about this a little bit. Rome has kind of taken over the world. They've dominated Okay, and Rome is brilliant in many ways, their road systems and stuff like that, but also in the way they govern. And so as they govern, as they would take over areas, they'd put a governor or a leader over the area. And so when they came to Israel, they didn't necessarily find a Jewish guy, but they found a guy who was from the area, and they made Herod. Herod the Great, you will be the king of the Jews. Now you have to realize as, as a local guy and perhaps as a political guy, like this is a big deal. Caesar has called you up and said to you, this is your area. You govern this area. You report back to me. You get the taxes. You ship them back to Rome because we're, we're, we're doing it. We're taking over. And so Herod the Great had been named king of the Jews. And uh, Herod was zealous about being king of the Jews. In fact, when he caught wind of his wife, perhaps, you know, like moving in to like take it, When his sons came of age, it's said in history that the, Herod took his kingship of the Jews very, very seriously. He was a very ruthless man, even to his own family. And so, you know, it's almost like there hasn't even been any fanfare, but it's like, how did, the, how did Herod even find out about this? We learned about this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And Herod is like, I mean, I'm 50. Uh, you're, you're late, but happy birthday. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Okay, 
you don't want to read too much into this, but this it seems like a really big space there, okay? Hey, scribes, rulers, smart people, where is this Jesus to be born? Like, who are these guys talking about? They told him. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So these wise men come in, and wise men are kingmakers. There's various stories about who the wise men are and how they got their authority. But it kind of seems like they would travel from nation to nation, and they would anoint kings for nations. Did they work for Rome? Some guys say yes, and some guys say no. They're most likely from Palestine. Some guys, a guy I read who was particularly interesting, say that these guys could have been impacted by the ministry of a guy named Daniel. A guy named Daniel who was hauled off when Babylon took Jerusalem. And so perhaps these guys didn't rub shoulders with Daniel, but they were the next generation or a couple generations away. And they had probably heard from Daniel that there's a promise coming. There's a promise coming. I don't know where the star fits into this, but they saw a star and they knew this is the, something's big. This, this is that time. This is that king. And so from Persia or wherever they were, exactly Iraq area, they're like, we're going to head that way and we're going to go see this king that has been born. And so they show up in a place where you think they should. Like, let's go to the palace in the capital city. Like, that's where kings are born. And so they show up. That's where I would have gone. They go to the palace in the capital city. And they go talk directly to the king. And again, this is awkward conversation number two. Herod the Great, you great man. We're here to, where's the king of the Jews? You know, you get this picture of like, huh? Huh? Silence. Herod is troubled in his heart. This is a jealous, zealous man for his position. And here you have these kingmakers coming into your town. And I want to challenge a little bit in love your nativity scene, okay? What we read about kingmakers historically is that there's not three of them. There might be maybe 300 of them, okay? So get your wood blocks out and start carving. You've got six months, okay? But they would come. Like, you don't hide kingmakers when they come to anoint a king, They walk into the street, all of them with their camels and probably a bunch of servants and various things. Again, some of this is a little speculative, so be careful with it. But nonetheless, you don't hide when kingmakers come. And Herod's like, they're like, hey, kingmakers are in town. Kingmakers are in town. Kingmakers are in town. And so they're like, well, Herod's our king of the Jews. And then they come in and they say, hey, I'm looking for the king of the Jews. And everybody in Jerusalem is like, why is that Herod was king of the Jews? I thought, I mean, Herod, Herod is me. He's the king of the Jews. The Romans said Herod the Great was the king of the Jews. Who's the king of the Jews? And the kingmakers came in and almost create a stir, right? And Herod is stunned. And what also is stunning about this text is the ease, and I pointed it out a little bit, with which they found the prophecy that says, in Bethlehem of Judea. And it's not like they believed him. But they believed him enough to send these wise men over to Bethlehem. Like, this is a damning reality. Like, they had the truth. They had the prophets. And when wise men come, you don't tell them lies. Hey, Bethlehem. Uh, yeah, yeah, go there. No, they had the truth and they sent him on their way. 
And Herod catches the wise men at some point afterward and says, like, well, you go find them, okay? You guys, you guys go do your thing. Let me know. Let me know about them. I want to come and worship too. I want to come and worship this king of the Jews that you, you speak of, right? So let's jump over to verse 10. Matthew states, when they, so they go, go out and they're going to start looking and the star reappears. And they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed on their own way. So a couple things that are important here. Another subtle attack on your nativity scene. Okay? It was a couple years. Okay? Uh, my pastor at the church I was at before says, like, when you set up your nativity over here, you need to start the wise men, like, on the other side of the living room. Perhaps the neighbor's house would be sufficient, okay? These guys see a star, perhaps when the Christ is born, but you see them walking into a house, and you see Mary, like, what are you, camels, lots of people, like, hey, what's up? And you see a child running in their other room saying, mommy, what's going on out there? Who are these people? And these wise men, these guys who probably had a ton of prestige, perhaps even some subtle power, they knew their place. And when they saw the Christ, they fall on their knees and they worshiped him. They worshiped Jesus for who he was. When he ent- they enter their house and they see him, they-, they know their place. And it's not a place of honor and supremacy. It's a place that comes under the king. King Lord Jesus, the King of the Jews. And they immediately worship him in the presence. And it's amazing to me, it's important to me that we understand that they don't just pull out gifts like, hey, I got this good thing for you. Hey, I got this for you. Like, hey, you're cute. Hey, that's fun. Like, worship. The first thing they do is worship the king. The kingmakers worshiping in front of this little child because they know who he is. But then it's almost like God was preparing Mary and Joseph for something. They give him gifts of honor. They give him gifts of respect. They give him gifts of royalty, gold. What king doesn't exist without gold? I had those little Lego castles, right? And in every Lego castle I owned or built, at somewhere in that Lego castle, there was this little brown box and it opened and there were gold coins. Because a king had a castle and a king had gold coins, right? And so they gave him gold and frankincense and more symbols of royalty that Jesus possessed. But things of wealth, right? In case you go on a big trip. Well, wait. Let's go to the next part here. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. And this part is tough. This part is no joke, Uh, but we learn as we read through Genesis and as we read through Revelation, like God doesn't hide anything from us. This ain't pretty. When you have a jealous, zealous king and you tell him, hey, there's another king, his his heart's revealed. Okay, so let's just see what happens here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. So these are the wise men. Now when they departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And again, these guys aren't kings and queens, right? Like the savings account may not have existed, probably didn't. But hey, some guys came and they gave us valuable myrrh and frankincense that we can sell. And we've got this gold here. 
Okay, like we need to get out of Dodge. An angel appeared to me in a dream. Okay, the Lord is providing and protecting. Like he protected the line of Jesus all the way from Adam to Joseph and Mary. And now he's protecting the Christ child, right? You look at a little infant in the room. Hope is holding a little baby back there, right? Like that's how Jesus came. He's not dominating the world on a horse. Like we read about that in Revelation. That's coming, but he comes in and he's God with us. He experiences absolute weakness. Like, can you imagine, like, wrap your head around the thought of feeding Jesus with your little wooden spoon? Come on, open your mouth. Come on, oh, I got some on your cheek. Thank you. Helpless. Jesus Christ, like, I wouldn't have done it that way. Like, let's go to the palace. Let's just give Herod the boot. Show him who's king of the Jews. Let's dominate. And he comes in as a helpless child. And God, his father, is protecting this child, right? So he talks to Joseph in a dream. Rise up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy it. And he rose up and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, hear this, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, I believe Hosea, out of Egypt, I will call my son. There's this picture of Israel, Abraham, back in the day, lived in the land of Israel before it was Israel, right? And then he moves down to, or Isaac moves down to Egypt, right? And he's imprisoned. And he's redoing the same story, okay? And so they've been in Egypt in the past, and here Jesus goes down to Egypt, and they stay and live until Herod, until Herod dies. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But, but God had prophesied it. So when God is warning Joseph about these things, God, God knows. This isn't like, oh, crud, Herod's getting angry. Um, God knows, and he tells, and he works through that. This was to fulfill Right? Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, in all the region, who were two years of age or older or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men, fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel is a reference to Israel. She refused to be comforted because there were no more. This king, this earthly appointed king of the Jews, afraid for his future, lashed out. His heart was revealed. Power, control, anger, bitterness, rage, hatred, murderous, revealed. His world, his kingdom was threatened. And he lashes out. He falls apart. But even Herod in all his rage and all his anger could not thwart the plan of God. Jesus Christ is safe in Egypt. His obedient father hauls him there. So verse 19 says this, but when Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is like the armpit of this area. 
Are you kidding me? We're going to Nazareth? Now, I want to make an allusion here because we live in an area where we have all the towns around us. And I'm not going to rip on anybody because you might be from that town and hate me after this, okay? But I lived in Climax, Minnesota. And we're like, can anything good come out of Nielsville? Oh, those people. I should probably edit this out of the video, okay? But you're just like, come on. Like, Nielsville? Is, are there any Christians in Nielsville? Like, or Eldred. Oh, Eldred, Eldred. I don't know. Like, Nielsville, Eldred. Uh, I don't know. It's more like this, right? And this is Nazareth, right? This is how the people are processing this, too. Like, Jesus is supposed to be king. Like, why isn't he in Jerusalem? Like, this is supposed to be a big deal. God with us. And we're hanging out in Egypt, nonetheless. We're not even hanging out in Israel. And then we're hanging out in Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Nazareth? And you, you just see, like, he's not pushing for headlines. The Jerusalem press isn't knocking at the door, wondering, like, how many peas did he eat today? Is he healthy? Is he good? What is, what is Mary wearing today? Is she dressed appropriately? Is she awesome? It's just a subtle, simple story that displays God's sovereign control. God is orchestrating. God is protecting. God is working. And he's living in Nazareth so that what was written, another prophecy, could be fulfilled. So that it could be fulfilled, right? And even Herod couldn't do this. I think of back in Daniel. I don't have this verse for the screen. But Daniel 4 says this. Nebuchadnezzar has been challenged by God. Nebuchadnezzar at that time. He was king of the world, and God says, hey, Neb, I'll make you a cow. And Neb's like, no, I'm pretty awesome. And God says, you're a cow, and he's a cow for seven periods of time. Okay, there's more to this story. You should read it. It's in Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar repents one day, and he says this, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, right? This powerful, angry Herod, I'm going to destroy anybody who stands up against me. He's gone. And God's kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And nobody can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? God is Lord. God orchestrates. God fulfills. From a little man named Abraham to a little group of people that would eventually bless every tribe, tongue, and nation. From a humble Mary and a fearful Joseph. From a little town of Bethlehem, a barn nonetheless. Then Egypt, the place of the enemy. And then Nazareth? God orchestrates. God ordains. And God sends someone through a history of the family line of murderers and adulterers and sinful people. God sends someone to dress our sin. God sends someone to address our sins. So what are you doing with Jesus? Certainly the one question is like, are you saved? Like, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that God is king. Much like Joseph, you know, when life throws you lemons, like you're anchored on this God who never changes. He never surprises you. He's always working things out for his glory. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what the world throws at you, you're like, I'm okay because God's on his throne. I'm okay. God's working something out here. 
What do you do with Jesus? And here's my big idea, the point that I want you to grasp. Like, let the fulfilled promises of God in Jesus fuel your daily worship of him. I think a lot of us go about our business, you know, and and God is more of an afterthought. I'm talking to you Christians. I'm not talking to you who might not believe. I'm talking to us as a church. You Bible-believing, God-fearing, God-loving people. We're busy We like to deal in gifts. We don't like to deal in worship because we still have stuff to do. Church, let's worship. When you look at how God has orchestrated and fulfilled this narrative of who Jesus Christ is and how he came into the world, worship. And maybe I'm saying this more to me like than you, but don't panic. God's got this. It's no joke. Like when Herod goes out and murders, like that's no joke. But God cared for his people. It's almost like he worked things out for the good of those who loved him and were called according to his purpose. God's got this. Nothing's going to take away. Let that fuel your worship. Worship in the morning. Worship at lunch. Worship in the afternoon. Worship in the evening. Worship when it breaks down. Worship when it goes well. Praise the Lord for his kindness and faithfulness to you. And so it's hard. Like, how do you walk out of a narrative story? The story of, hey, this is how Jesus came into existence on the earth. How do we walk out of it? Well, there's a few things that I thought of for this text. One, look at, look at how Joseph responded. Joseph responded in obedience. He followed what the Lord commanded. Continuously. He had a bomb dropped in his lap. Surprise. I'm going to obey. Called to a different city. I'm going to obey. Up against a king as basically a peasant. I'm, I'm, I'm going to obey. Joseph was obedient. A second person you should consider is Herod. Herod had the truth of the prophets of God. Herod had the scriptures in front of his face. They knew he, Jesus Christ was in Bethlehem of Judea. And he rejected the king of the Jews. And again, I'm not necessarily talking to those of you who don't believe in Jesus. I'm talking to you who believe in Jesus. Are you rejecting Jesus? I like Jesus in these areas. I don't like Jesus in these areas. That's, that's a problem. Do you have any of your areas that you, this is my kingdom? Uh, this is my kingdom. I, don't, I, am, I am the king of this area. And Jesus says, nope, actually I am. Reflect on Herod and say to yourself, are there any kingdoms that you have built that you will not submit or serve Jesus the king? And the third thing you can look at is look at the actions of the wise men. Some of us, I think, are really busy doing good things. Christians are called to worship Jesus. Before you stop swearing, worship Jesus. Before you stop drinking, worship Jesus. Before you fight pornography, worship Jesus. Before you fight bitterness in your life, worship Jesus. We want to come and we're like, hey, I'm d- here's these gifts, Jesus. I'm stopping this and I'm doing that. And I, and I serve, I do setup team, I help my church, I'm helping my neighbor, I'm helping my community. All good things. Worship Jesus. Come into his presence with worship. Celebrate who he is. Consider his faithfulness. Let your worship of Jesus help you help your neighbor. 
Let your worship of Jesus help you help your church. Let your worship of Jesus help you fight your addiction. May it be fueled by what Jesus has done. God is working something out. And there's this reality as we come into the story of Jesus Christ coming, that Jesus Christ comes for you and I. And we know the end of the story, though I want to go there. I don't want to spend a lot of time in it because we are going to cover it too. But Christ died for sin. There's no person in this room that has a sin so atrocious that Christ can't conquer. Your worst evil, God can conquer. And he did so on the cross. It wasn't so much or only that Jesus would come and live on the earth as Emmanuel, God with us. It was that Jesus Christ would conquer Satan's sin and death. And he did it about 33 years later on a cross. Jesus Christ shed his blood. He died the death that you and I couldn't die. And he rose again, which you and I are incapable of doing, so that you could have life. And so as we end our service, like normal, we end in in communion. But let this not become a tradition for you, something you do after the service. Reflect. Are there any ways that you have a kingdom that you will not let Jesus Christ in? Do you, do you follow the Lord in obedience and worship? Pray about these things. And where you fail, like confess these things. And come and participate in the body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Saying, I'm broken, but I'm a follower of Jesus. I know that God is in control, and I follow Jesus. I worship Jesus. Let's worship Jesus as we take communion. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful to you for how you have worked. God, you are a faithful promise keeper. God, and we are grateful. Who could bring about such a crazy story as this were it not for you? God, we're grateful to you for your character of faithfulness. God, we're grateful to you for your character of truth. God, we're grateful to you for your character of sovereignty and grace and mercy. God, and may we reflect on that. God, if there's any areas of our lives as Christians, Lord, that we will not give you control over, God, convict us. Challenge us, Lord. Father, and of course, for those who who don't know you, God, give them a boldness to ask, who is Jesus? God, and begin in them a hunger uh, to know their maker and to love Jesus. God, we are grateful to you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for life, man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.